Um, so this idea of there's a state of purity, and then you're doing a thing that's corrupting that state of purity. You're introducing a contaminant, um, and that contaminant, even though small, can be very powerful. Right? Can have big effects, and that, that that's a morally bad thing to do. You shouldn't do that. Um, that I think is, I, I really do think, is already part of how some people at least think about climate issues. So here's a question for you: What do you find disgusting? What makes you go yuck? You might say, Dave. Dog poo makes me disgusted. Or other people's sick on my shoes. Or something like that. Or you might say, horrible behaviour makes me disgusted. When people are mean. Or when politicians do things I don't believe in. Or you might say, prejudice against whole groups is disgusting. Or given this is a podcast about climate change, you might say, climate change is disgusting. Or the behaviour of some people that leads to it. The greed and the pollution and the not seeming to care. Is all of that disgust, though? Is it the same thing to recoil in horror from the smell of someone else's baby's nappy as it is to think about politicians ruining the planet and feel revulsion? Is it helpful language to use? What does it teach us about climate change to think about disgust as a thing? And what might we learn about what to do about the climate crisis from thinking about whether we can learn to do anything about what disgusts us or not? Joining me this week on Your Brain on Climate is Professor Yoel Inbar from the University of Toronto. He's an associate professor of psychology, a proper expert in disgust about how things like disgust, intuitions and emotions affect our social, political and moral beliefs. Absolutely fascinating chat and really getting to the heart of what I want to do with this podcast. How does something so innate in our brain, or apparently innate as what we find disgusting, shape the way entire societies work? and what we do about things like climate change. Now, as always, if you hear this noise, it denotes wisdom. Don't stop the podcast, but when you're finished, you can have a look in the show notes and I'll put a little link to more information about the thing What the Owl has told you about. Now, look, this is an episode that talks a bit about disgusting things and in a couple of places even plays the sound of disgusting things. So if you have any dinner or you're a little bit sensitive to such things, perhaps treat this episode with caution. I don't want to overdo it. It's just a chat between two people about something. But we started, for example, by me asking Yoel what was going on when my friend Matt went to the toilet in a pub and came back so horrified he made me feel disgusted by what he'd seen. Your brain, your brain, your brain, your brain on, on climate. climate. I was in the pub last night with my mate, and my mate came back from the toilet and he looked horrified. And I said, What is it? What is it? Matt, his name. I said, what is it, Matt? What's happened? And he said, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you. And eventually I prized out him that somebody had done something very unpleasant all over the toilet. I mean, you're not talking like... This was a, a, a piece of art that somebody had done with their bottom, right? And we felt disgusted in that moment. And I felt disgusted even though I hadn't seen it. The idea of a toilet 
covered in that. It yep. made me feel disgusted. So what's going on there? What's happening in my brain? Well, uh, you have a visceral reaction to things that might get you sick. And it's strong enough that even, like, let's say you see see a video. Uh, so one thing that we use a lot in, in research on disgust, when we want to make people grossed out, apropos of this toilet thing, you know the scene in, you've ever seen the film Trainspotting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember where he's digging through the toilet? He loses his suppository in there. <laughs> Right. And he has to go fishing in there. Right. Yeah. So we use that. If people literally people have, I don't think quite needed to vomit, but nearly so. Yeah. Right. And, and it's not like you're uh, touching that yourself. It's not like you're smelling it. It's just a video. But even so, you know, the kind of visceral sense of repulsion and uh, nausea is so strong from that that it can be overwhelming. In this case, you didn't even see a picture, but just your buddy telling you mm. that he had seen this was enough to make you maybe uh, feel a little ill. So uh, what this points to is that this emotion that really, like we think, evolved us to keep us away from things that uh, might make us ill is is strong enough that can be triggered even by somebody else's verbal description of a, what we would call a disgust elicitor, just a thing that grosses you out. Disgust is keeping us away from bad things. That's the essence of what is going on. That's that's the way we think about it, right? Because, you know, how new is germ theory of disease? Like, goes back to what? Like, the 1800s, right? So, this throughout, like, the vast majority of the time that humans were humans, this wasn't understood. Nonetheless, we evolved an instinctive response to things that could uh, make us sick. And it, it, I'm talking there primarily about, you know, pathogen transmission. And so, things that posed a high risk of that people find disgusting, and they don't want those things near them, they don't want them on them, they want to get away from them. All of those things kind of lower the risk that those uh, pathogens are going to get into you and make you sick. So, like, things coming out of other people, that's definitely a thing. So, like... That's a big one, absolutely. Poo-poo-poo. Yep. Pee-pee. Yeah. Vomity things. Blood. Blood. Other people's bloods. Blood. Mucus. Mucus is a good one. Oh, keep going. This is sexy. (laughs) Well, sexy things. Other people's people's sexy things, perhaps, depending on whether we like those people. Um, Right. And then also, like, rotten food and Mm -hmm. dead sheep and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's you. You just touched on the the primary ones. Um, the the one thing that I would add to that is that most meat people find disgusting. So it varies across cultures, obviously, right? But most cultures have a small set, subset of meat that's okay, and yeah. then all, almost all other meat is is gross, right? So if you think about eating a rat. Um, disgusting. If you think about eating an insect, disgusting. That's like, there's, there's a lot of cross cultural variability there. You know, is it, let's say, a horse? You know, some cultures totally fine to eat a horse. In the US, I, I think most people find that repugnant. Uh, but the, the core thing is, you know, there's, there's a small subset of meats that were like, those are safe. And then there's kind of a larger set of meats where we're like, no way. We we had a thing in the UK, I can't remember what it was now, five, ten years ago, something like that, where it was revealed that loads of beef burgers that people thought they were eating, or beef lasagna or something, was actually possibly horse. And people went spare about it, right? They went berserk. Even though, you know, they'd enjoyed the thing every bit as much as they thought they were going to do, but suddenly the retrospective idea that they were eating a different type of 
like essentially same thing made people go funny. Yep. That's weird though, isn't it? Yep. Yep. And that's obviously not about any kind of explicit beliefs about safety, or at least I wouldn't think so, right? It's not that they think that literally they're going to get some disease from it. It's just, no, you shouldn't eat that. Um, and I think we will, we'll get into this later, but I, it also is a great example of, you know, there's a lot of cultural flexibility, right? So there's some stuff that just across cultures, um, people find disgusting. But then, then there's also a lot of cultural variation. And where it's, you know, this is all just kind of hypothesizing or speculation, maybe. But the idea is like, it's useful for there to be able, for, for people to be able to have some some flexibility in the system, right? So within that specific cultural context, what's the stuff that's more or less safe? Well, that's where you you can use a learning component to say like, okay, well, the, the meat that we usually eat that doesn't tend to make us sick, that's probably okay. The meat that I don't know anything about, eh, there, there I want to be careful. And do we know inside the brain, like, do we know sort of chemically what it is? Is it just like a, a, a chemical being sent to the bit of your body that makes you want to run away very fast? Uh, yeah, well, it's, you know, it, it, it's never that simple. Uh, and the problem, <laughs> unfortunately, that, right. would, that yeah. would be nice. Yeah, yeah. And and there's been, uh, you know, localization studies where uh, people have used functional neuroimaging. So basically, like you put people on a big machine that says what part of the brain is more or less active and when they're encountering different stuff. And you show them pictures of, you know, uh, nice meadows or office furniture, or maybe pile of poop, right? And then you're like, okay, well, where, <laughs> where <laughs> do you, you want to be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down on these pictures. Then you're like, okay, say they're looking at pile of poop compared to the other things. Um, what does that sort of uniquely activate? And there's a, a part of the brain called the uh, insula. Um, it's uh, an older part of the brain. It's often considered to be part of the like limbic system. So they kind of like a... Um, evolutionarily old uh, part of the brain. The other things insula does, um, uh, particularly that specific portion of it that, that's activated by disgust has to do with taste, smell, um, bodily sensation, so upset stomach, right? So it's kind of a mm. logical place uh, for the disgust reaction to be centered. Um does that tell you know? So, like conceptually, then we can say, well, we this really makes sense that this is an emotional reaction that has something to do with um, ingestion, smell, and like feeling you know viscerally grossed out. Um, beyond that, does it tell you more about kind of the like social importance of disgust? I I don't know, right? I think we can say, yeah, there's this low level physiological stuff that happens in the brain there that has to do with these specific reactions. And I guess the last question on uh, what disgust is. What is the opposite of it? So I was reading about what's he called? Pluchkick. Is that his name? Pluchkick. How do you pronounce I, it? Pluchkick. I thought, Pluchik. but you know, your your guess is as good as mine. To be honest, ah uh, man, it's a sign you can tell that I've never actually heard someone say it and just read it. Like I know what I'm talking about, right? But his idea is there's eight basic emotions, and that they're actually four pairs, right? So crudely, disgust and like the opposite will have an opposite and like so and uh love and hate is not it but that sort of idea right so yeah what's that, what what would you say in your research is that the opposite of disgust because we're going to come to this as well i think yeah so i i guess i'm not quite as on board with the idea that emotions need to have opposites so the way we often think about it in emotion research is that at least part of an emotion is this kind of evolved response to a stimulus that conferred some sort of like survival benefit on on our ancestors over time, right? And so when you look at it that way, is there logically a reason 
that there needs to be an opposite emotion from the emotion that keeps you from interacting with things that would make you ill. Not necessarily. So you can say like, well, there's some things that like disgust turns off, like the desire to, to eat something, for example. Um, sexual arousal tends to down regulate disgust as you might expect, right? So when you're not turned on, a lot of that stuff is super gross. And when you are, you're like, absolutely. <laughs> right? Sure, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, no, just let's let's say hypothetically. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Haidt, who's a, a moral psychologist, um, he's proposed this emotion elevation that he thought kind of socially functioned as the opposite of disgust. Elevation, he says, is the emotion that you feel when you see somebody doing something like really morally admirable or um, just generally impressive. And he, he says it has this bodily sensation of feeling kind of warm and tingly. Um, so sometimes it can be like sometimes who somebody who like really shows some amazing skill, but it could also be somebody who shows like bravery or empathy or one of these uh, attributes, like uh. moral attributes that we like. So he thinks like, well, in its kind of social sense where disgust is about condemning, elevation is about praising. So you can think of that as the opposite. Doesn't really tell you much about you know, reactions to rotten food though. So like, I don't think that I wouldn't want to point to one emotion and say like, Oh, in all senses, that's the opposite of disgust. Maybe for pieces, you can see, you know, different um, emotions are just like tendencies, appetites or whatever that are kind of uh, turned on or off by it, I suppose. So, right, we talked about this a little bit there. Can you unlearn to be disgusted by something? To what extent is it a purely base thing that's part of our psychology? And to what extent is it something that we learn and then can be unlearned, do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, well, that's, it's, I mean, it's certainly not either or. Uh, so, you know, young babies are, aren't disgusted by poop. Um, and then there's a time where that comes online at around like age uh, two to three. Uh, so it's as if you're a parent, you know, you might, you might've observed this yourself. Right. Uh, so I, I think that uh, certainly there's an evolved underlying basis to that, but it's not always present throughout development. And then furthermore, you know, as adults, you know, people can habituate to almost anything, right? That's like almost like the blessing and the curse of being human, right? It's, um, it means we can get used to things that are, uh, at first quite bad. So like, I, I don't know, take it to like the extreme quadriplegics aren't as miserable as, as you might think intuitively. And the reason for that is, well, you kind of get used to it. I mean, I, I don't want to overstate it, right? I think you never hundred percent get yeah. used to it. It's not like you go back up to your baseline. There's other like bad life stressors where like permanently it reduces people's well-being, but you sort of habituate somewhat at least. On the flip side, you habituate to really good stuff too, right? So yeah, when you yeah. get like a, a twenty thousand dollar raise, you're at first you're like, "This is great," and then eventually it sort of fades into the background. In, in the same way, you know, you can habituate to certain disgusting um, stimuli. So uh, I, I'm not a parent, uh, but I have been a dog owner, and at first I was intensely disgusted by the idea of like picking up dog poop, even in a in a plastic bag, because it's like it's all warm and squishy, and it was just like really revolting to me. And eventually, I was just like, yeah, no big deal, right? By the, <laughs> the hundredth dog poop you've picked up, you're like, whatever. And I, I, I take it for you know, you have you have young kids. It's the same thing. They're constantly covered in poop and snot, and they you know you're changing their diaper and they piss 
piss all over you, and eventually you're like, whatever. You know, they <laughs> bring it, you bring down. it, bring you're it. Right, exactly. Try and get it in my mouth next time. Bring exactly it on. right. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You're just ready to go, right? And and so I I think of that as. Um, just another example of this like very basic habituation process. You encounter it enough times and it sort of loses its uh, emotional punch. Um, so I think in very specific domains, you know, you can um, see kind of a decline of people's response to these things that initially would have disgusted them a lot. I don't think it generalizes that much, right? So it's, it's hard for me to see how in general you would make yourself less disgust sensitive. I think it's specific to the stimulus that you're habituating to. Right, yeah, like if you're uh, if your parents, I mean, you know, God forbid, but this probably happens to loads of us. Your parents get old. Your parents have to move in with you. Um, you end up cleaning them, let's say, when they need cleaning, and presumably that doesn't mean that you are all right with every old person's bottom. Just that's right. That, <laughs> it's right? very specific. Exactly very, very right. specific. Yeah, and that sort of implies that if somebody is disgusted by something you do, but you think is all right, I don't know. Let's say Yoel has a terrible habit of uh, picking his nose and wiping it on his toast before he eats it, and that's what you've always done. Uh, and your partner goes, "You know, that's disgusting. How could you not do that?" You presumably you can't say to him, "No, it's fine. Don't worry about it. That's not going to work." <laughs> right? <laughs> No, it does not. It does not. Yeah. So, so hypothetically, all just completely hypothetically. <laughs> um, yeah. No. It's it. It, it could be like that. Could be tough to reconcile, right? So, like, I'm naturally right now. I'm lucky uh, that I have clear airways, but I have allergies. I'm naturally a very snotty person, I, and and I've gotten used to it. And my girlfriend mm. is not yet used to it, you know, and it does, it, it occasionally causes some conflict. And it's not a good argument to say, oh, it's fine. You know, I sneeze all that. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, no, if you're grossed out by it, you're grossed out by it. So let's talk about what this means sort of outside the individual and into social stuff. And I was thinking about this a lot and I started to get a bit kind of, whoa, this is massive, right? Because when in our society, you'll often hear the word, a thing is disgusting. That um, load of stuff going on in UK politics at the moment, this will date, doesn't matter what it is, where people are saying that's disgusting. What the Prime Minister has done is disgusting, right? So what's happening there? Because he's not, like Boris Johnson is a lot of things, he's not literally disgusting, but for a lot of people he's sort of morally disgusting. And I use him as an example, right? So what's happening when we're associating kind of characteristic, moral characteristics with disgust? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of debate on that just among people who study this stuff. Um, so for a, a, a while, it was thought that to some extent, you know, when people were using this sort of language, that very often that they were literally feeling like at least a little bit of a pang of disgust. And so that, um, you know, we use this fancy word exapted. Uh, it just kind of means, you know, taken from one place and put into another. That what was the, that the word? Exapted. Exapted. Yeah. Ex-apted. No, it's, it's another, it's, it's one of those like nice pieces of jargon that we use to intimidate the lay people, you know. Uh, it, but it, it just means, you know, yeah, it evolved for this, but it's now being used for this. So they, they thought, people thought literally, um, that people are experiencing a flash of disgust when they're encountering these moral violations that don't have any sort of disgust content in them. And there's sort of a debate that's raging back and forth about whether that's actually true. Um, 
And I, my current position is that people are really using that word metaphorically in that case. So they're, they're saying, you know, it's like the thing that mm. you think is repulsive, that you don't want around you, that you want to avoid, not that they're literally experiencing that emotion. But look, you have a different psychologist on, they might give you a different answer about that, right? Like, I, I think it's a really like debated uh, question right now. Because you can, there is also something that about, we're talking a bit about climate change stuff, but I have caught myself in my life, right, with a sort of caricature of a type of person, like, say, uh, uh, evil oil company who is quite happily you know, spilling oil into the sea and imagining the boss of that oil company and describing the behaviour as disgusting and then almost catching myself sort of imagining what this person looks like. And what I'm imagining that person looking like is kind of sweaty and oily and slimy and do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, with kind no, of no, all, no. And all of these things. And I'm wondering uh, if we 100%. are to an extent kind of almost like people are imagining Boris Johnson smells a bit bad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 No. So definitely there, there's, I guess you would say like anecdotal or historical evidence that like, I mean, not to compare you, uh, (laughs) to the Nazi party of Germany, but, um, (laughs) however, however, having said that, you know, when, when you look at like Nazi propaganda about, uh, groups they didn't like, like Jews, for example, Mm. they, they very much emphasize these viscerally disgusting elements. Like literally they're oily, they're dirty, they're infested with lice, they smell bad. Mm. Um, and and so I think that's you know a, kind of a deliberate attempt to push people's disgust buttons. Like so, in, in that I would say, okay, well that is a like literal physical disgust lister, right? Somebody's dirty, they smell bad, um, and they the Nazis realized uh, that this makes us more negative towards that group, right? If we kind of automatically start to associate with them with these physical disgust elicitors. I I don't know if it's been looked at, you know, what you're suggesting is like that people might spontaneously for the morally disliked then start thinking of like physically gross attributes that they have, right? And I don't know that that's been looked at, but that would be a really interesting, and I think like that's definitely something that you could study, right? Like, see, this guy's a child molester. Do you think it's the dude with the oily skin or the the dude with the good skin, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't want to prejudge the scientific process, but it's tempting to imagine that the bits of people's brains that fire up with a physical disgust reaction would fire up when they were thinking of a child molester or something like that. Are there studies being done into that, like seeing what bits of the actual brain light up when you show people a morally bad Yeah, there, there's some research uh, trying to do that. I would say it's... Um somewhat inconclusive at this point. It's just, the thing is these tools are just not that great. So the resolution that you get is not that good. And it's not, you know, you want to think of it as like, oh, this module turned on, right? And in fact, what it more seems to be is that lots of different areas are constantly talking to each other. And so it's this dynamic process that involves, you know, like not one area going up or down, but like, let's say 10, and this guy goes up and this guy goes down and it's sort of like dynamic network process. It's just tough to capture, like given the technology that we have, right? So that's kind of where you run up against the limits of just like what you can do with the imaging right now. So you can say like, yeah, for certain moral violations, you know, the insula, again, is reacting there. Um, Often those are moral violations that have some physical disgust content in there as well. So then is it the morality per se? Is it the kind of physical disgust stuff? Eh, 
Tough to say, right? And, and, and then on top of that, these brain areas always do like a million different things, right? So you could be like, oh, it's coming online because of this. Well, maybe it's coming online because of one of the many other things that that area responds to. I so don't like it when you say things are complicated. I want simple It's very answers. tough, and I'm sorry to hear the <laughs> rain on your neuroscience parade, but it is. It's tricky. Your brain, 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 your what loads of individual people think is morally disgusting turns into what a society thinks is morally disgusting. And I guess whether that's right, like if, if the, the, sort of these big ideas in society about what's right and wrong can be traced down in large part to these sort of, to, to these stories of disgust. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, if I'm understanding the question correctly, yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> big F, big F. Uh, but you know, all societies have certain kinds of things that are inbounds and certain kinds of things that are out of bounds, and particularly around um, norms of sexuality, norms of cleanliness, norms of eating. This is obviously like stronger in um, more traditional societies, right? Um, and those kinds of cultural, you know, you might almost call them taboos, like those are. I think very often disgust backed, right? So somebody who chooses to transgress those, uh, they're not just making an individual choice, right? They're they're doing something disgusting, um, and so you could say like, well, on a on a social level, uh, there's these kind of broad kind of cultural norms, but then on an individual level, those are in enforced, um, delineated by the kind of individual level reactions of like, ugh, that we have to people or behaviors that that transgress them. Yeah, because it can work both ways, I guess, because then over time, societies can dis- can change what is in and out of bounds. And the story well, of right, the, the moral yeah. stories of what we think is morally disgusting definitely changes over time. And this is where we get into climate change stuff, right? Like you might imagine a society 10, 50, 100 years in the future to consider wasting energy to be disgusting, on a sort of way that we perhaps culturally don't have, certainly in Western societies right now, or the idea that the earth is a thing that can just be taken from and taken from to be sort of not just intellectually abhorrent, but kind of culturally, morally disgusting. Yep. Yep. So I I think you can already see. um, So the way that uh, liberals often talk about uh, driving, like, let's say, a big SUV, that emits mm-hmm. a lot of greenhouse gases as being sort of polluting in a physical way, right? And in a way that, you know, I mean, I would say like your individual escalade, it doesn't make a ton of sense, right? But it's, you know, you are defiling the environment, you know, you are putting filth into the air. Um, and there we do get to something that's close to physical disgust, right? Um, so this idea of, there's this state of purity, and then you're doing a thing that's corrupting that state of purity. You're introducing a contaminant, um, and that contaminant, even though small, can be very powerful, 
right? It can have big effects. And that, that that's a morally bad thing to do. You shouldn't do that. Um, that I think is, I, I really do think is already part of how some people at least think about climate issues. Yeah. Purity is an interesting, it's the first time we've used that word, but that makes a lot of sense, right? For a lot of people, there's that idea of like, the earth is pure. And that's where you get, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people I've met, the sort of reactions to like, chemicals is an example of that like what is a chemical anyway right chemicals are kind of everywhere but the idea of a man-made chemical being in the environment is actually to me if i think about it there's a sort of sense of impurity about that that feels on some level like a kind of whether it's discussed i don't know but definitely wrong somehow yes yeah that's right that's right and yeah this like the the idea of purity which is we haven't brought up yet. I mean it is kind of linked to this thinking about disgust and contamination right so um, the idea that a very small particle of something bad can contaminate a lot of something good, that's like very characteristic of disgust, right? So if I'm like, hey, I served you this soup, there was only a tiny bit of poo in it. It doesn't really, right? You're yes. not like, oh, all good, all good. Oh, that's right? cool, man. That's, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, totally. Fine, fine. Less than a teaspoon, no problem. It's like a, a very little bit you know, contaminates the whole batch. And now that we know about, you know, germ theory of disease, that actually makes sense, right? Like the pathogens in there can multiply and actually be bad for you or whatever. But the the kind of evolved mechanism of that, you know, it's it's just like heuristic that kind of maps to the same logic without actually having to know, well, how does this stuff work? It's just a little bit of the bad thing contaminates a lot of something previously neutral or positive, right? And so this idea of like, there's these things and they're... uh, they're bad and they're introduced into something good. And that has these big bad effects. I think that like, absolutely, you know, people think that way about the environment in a way that like, you know, it doesn't always line up with a way that, you know, you know, scientists would talk about it. People talk about bodily purity that way, right? The whole idea of like doing a cleanse, um, of clean eating, Mm. um, of, you know, uh, unprocessed, natural, additive-free foods, all of this stuff, I think, ties into this thinking that people have about purity. Is there anything partisan about it? Do we know that, like... So you mentioned liberals might be more likely to think like that. Is the the corollary of that that conservatives less so and is yeah that, no that's i mean instinctively it seems like so the reason why i'm asking right is as a lot of the a lot of stuff that i do talks about how to talk about climate change and one of the things that both left and right will agree on is this concept of waste the waste is bad right so but but you're suggesting that actually maybe for some people it's a that argument is not quite as strong or, or what Maybe I'm missing. Well, yeah, I, I don't know um, about the relative strength of the arguments. You know, purity is something that really uh, people in political psych and, and moral psych have thought as being kind of more appealing, if anything, to people on the right. And there are actually, there's at least one study showing that if you give conservatives in the U.S. like a pro-environment message that's about purity, that's about like, oh, our pristine natural environments are being despoiled by, you know, X, Y, and Z bad practice, that that actually resonates better with them than, you know, it harms these communities or whatever whatever it is that liberals like. Uh, so I, I think you can think of um, purity as being sort of a bipartisan thing, that both on the left and the right, that people can... Um, 
that's emotionally impactful for them. Um, with some other stuff that I've studied that I think is about like purity beliefs, um, like uh, anti-GMO attitudes, for example, mm. uh, in, in the U.S., there's not really a partisan divide on that stuff at all. It's really equal opportunity. So yeah, th- that to me says this is something that really like speaks to both sides of the aisle, at least in the countries that we've looked at. Yeah, I'm thinking of Donald Trump banging on about, you know, climate change is all made up and a Chinese hoax, but clean air and water are important, right? So he clearly didn't see any kind of, not that we we should hold him up as a bastion of, you know, consistent thinking or anything, but he clearly, you know, was appealing to a certain thing that like pollution bad, right? Yes, yes, 100%. Yeah, this is so interesting. I feel like there's an idea just out of like, I'm not clever enough. So if you could look into this and come back to me in a couple of years, (laughs) something about like moral purity in there as well. And about this thing about how an authentic politician, where at least you know where they are, is sort of, even if they're like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or something, who for all their flaws, people are like, I'll still vote for that guy, is better than one who holds themselves up to be morally pure and then is sort of contaminated by something. Yeah. Uh, and, and um, you know, this idea of hypocrisy coming in, but like I said, I'm not clever enough. Please work that out for me. Thanks, y'all. Right. Well, I mean, you're, you're right that people definitely hate hypocrisy. Um, you know, where purity comes more into play for me uh, in, you know, specifically stuff around around climate, there's this interesting debate about like, let's say you're a big diversified energy company, like let's say Shell, and you have some very dirty assets. Um, Those companies are now experiencing a lot of pressure from shareholders to say, get rid of those, right? Mm. How do they get rid of them? Typically, Um, they sell them to somebody who's less has fewer scruples, right? <laughs> uh, so some private equity company. So you can make an argument based on um, maybe the cost-benefit analysis. Shell should hold on to those. They're going to run those things, which are bad, which are bad, but but granted that somebody is going to run them, they're going to run them in a better way than the private equity company is going to because they care more about their image. The private equity company, you know, they've presumably gotten into the biz- business of buying up, you know, dirty uh uh, assets because they don't give a shit and they're like, we're going to make the most money out of this, right? But, you know, from a, a shareholder perspective, um, I think there's a strong pressure to say, I just don't want to be associated with that stuff. And to me, that has to do with purity and contamination, right? It's not about really about the outcomes. It's like, I don't want that next mm-hmm. to me, I right? Don't like, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You feel contaminated by the fact that this company that you're a shareholder in is... It has these really kind of dirty, polluting assets on its books, and you just don't want anything to do with that. Yeah, it's like that's right, isn't it? It's like having a bit of your body which has gone all sort of wrong off, and going instead of sort of going to a doctor about it, just kind of chopping it off and leaving it in the kitchen. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. it's kind of still there, not man. nice to your roommates. Uh, <laughs> still, exactly. <laughs> Um, sometimes tempting yes exactly you just want it away from you right there's a lot of that goes on i think and there's a lot of this in um not just with oil companies but just with companies in general right if you think about a story that a company i'm not picking on them particularly but i just happen to have bought something off amazon so amazon right and you look at the adverts that they're doing and it's all about adverts are all about renewable electricity powered vans and sustainability this and sustainability that and it's like as long as the story holds that this is a nice green company people are all right you know, they don't want to know about the other stuff or about all the things that are wrong with it. And there's a, a large part of what sort of corporate greenwashing, for want of a better word, again, not that I'm saying is what Amazon are doing, is, is kind of getting the stuff out of sight that is the bad stuff, but it still happens.
Is it helpful or unhelpful? I think I know the answer to this. To talk about climate change and to say disgusting oil companies or to talk about politicians who are doing dirty policies and call them disgusting. Like, is it a helpful frame to have in our head that something is morally disgusting? Do you think? Uh, well, it's it's definitely um, a double-edged sword, right? So that kind of thinking can be motivating. Um, it, it can get people to do stuff, get them to take action. And, and maybe that's what you want, right? You, you want to, to wake people up. Um, I've done some research in kind of on a different uh, a topic where we look at how do messages spread on Twitter and the messages that use that kind of extreme kind of moralized rhetoric, like the disgusting, uh, gives you a boost. People retweet that stuff more, right? So if you're like, yeah, I want to get the word out, I want to motivate people, then maybe it's good. On the other hand, um, these uh, intuitive kind of condemnation uh, responses that you get from highlighting this stuff, sometimes they they make you kind of dumb. Almost all the time, making good policy involves like careful cost-benefit trade-offs, um, and that may conflict with your kind of intuitive "ugh, I don't want it" kind of response. Uh, so yeah, it's I, I don't think you can say it's all good or all bad, but it definitely there's there there are pitfalls there for sure. If we are finding something disgusting and almost if not talking ourselves into it, sort of you know consciously feeding the bit of the brain that re- reacts to disgusting stuff in a particular sort of way, that what we might be doing is not going yeah, but hang on a minute, what do we actually do about this thing? We're just doing the equivalent of kind of trying to chop it off and hide it in the kitchen. Well, right, exactly. So when you're like, okay, you just need to get these uh, dirty assets off of your books, big corporation, without thinking about, okay, in the long run, what does that mean? Like, where are they going to go? Who are they going to sell them to? Is that going to leave us better off or worse off? Right there, I would say, yeah, maybe the intuitive aversion conflicts with if you were just going to soberly look at, well, what's the outcome that emits the least carbon? Then you would say, no, you know, keep them around, run them responsibly, whatever. I'm not going to commit that in any specific case that's actually true, right? I'm just, I, the point that I want to make is just weaker, which is that when we start thinking in this contamination-based way, it's very hard to then flip back to the frame where we're like, okay, I want to think kind of soberly and dispassionately about um, costs and benefits. Yeah, I've definitely been in that world. Like, I've worked on stuff that I find, like, in, in a different sphere, stuff to do with, like, animal cruelty stuff that I've worked on in the past, yeah, where, where my reaction to it personally is so strong and I just want to kind of stop that thing that any solution that anyone suggests, which is, like, sure, in 10 years' time we will do something about this problem, like, I kind of, like, I, my ears go red, like, actually angry and kind of, like, you know, and I've, I've felt that before. Um, and you see a lot of that, don't you, in, like, in, in the in the and it's understandable, but in, a, in the climate movement, you see a lot of that kind of anger and the sort of stuff that Greta Thunberg comes out with, that sort of, like, you know, really impassioned kind of, no, do this now, what's wrong with you sort of stuff, which, as you say, you need, right? You need a bit of that. You need that, you need that fire. But it also, like, that by itself isn't going to solve the problem. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you, I'm sure, know way more about this than I do. But just as, a, as an observer to how these debates play out, I think nuclear power is a great example. Um, obviously, carbon-free power obviously also has some, you know, risks and costs. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it does, I think, 
play into this kind of disgust-based, contamination-based thinking. I mean, just think about nuclear waste. You know, it's literally, it's literal contamination. And I think, you know, on the one hand, you can say, okay, from a cost-benefit standpoint, you know, we want to decarbonize the electrical grid. Um, what can we replace uh, with renewables versus how much can nuclear help us, like, let's say, more quickly shut down uh, fossil fuel-based uh, power plants? And is that trade-off worth it? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? Like, I'm not enough of an expert to say, but I think the kind of repulsion that at least in the U.S., which is you know, kind of the system I know best, that, that environmental groups have towards nuclear, like most of them anyway, seems to be more about, oh, I find this viscerally off-putting and less about, well, I've really, you know, done the projections of the costs and benefits of these different um, approaches. Right, you are boss of moral psychology at a big posh university, right? So you know, you know this stuff about disgust, right? So imagine you were in charge of a company that sells insects for people to eat, and there are such companies, and you know I've seen them. In fact, in another podcast, I've done a bit of that. What? How would you persuade people that a thing that culturally is seen to be disgusting no longer is? What would be the? How would you talk about it, and what would be the tactics you might use? And obviously, if you're listening, insect company, we should be charging you for this advice. Yeah. So, like, I, I think I would, um, I call it clean protein or something like that. Um, I would, I would try. Yeah, I would first of all try and talk about bugs as little as possible. <laughs> Not locusts exactly (laughs) (laughs) definitely not locust powder um you know some of this stuff has been done a little bit by um by companies that are selling meat substitutes so like plant-based ones right right. Uh, point to the like incredibly i don't need to tell you about this disgusting conditions under which factory farmed animals are raised i mean cows are you know they're like covered in their own shit all the time right and then show photos of the i don't know gleaming laboratory setup where like Mm. Let's say you don't see the bugs. They're in there somewhere. But what you see is the nice, white, sterile surfaces, right? And then you try and make it seem as little like a bug as possible, right? And you just talk about it in terms of its constituent parts. Will that work? I don't know. People really don't like to eat bugs. Um, but uh, that's that's the way that I would go. Free advice. And you see that also like with what the fossil fuel industry has tried to do with Gas, natural gas, as it is called, right? As opposed to fossil fuel gas, which is what it is, or clean coal. That's the next one, which yep. is just coal, right? Yep. Um, so that's a that's a long standing tactic, isn't it, to make something sound pure and clean and not sound, for example, <laughs> like a locust. Exactly right. Yo, thank you so much for joining me on Your Brain on Climate. How can people find out more about your work and follow you and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, uh, I have a podcast of my own. Uh, so this is a little niche. Uh, we drink beers and uh, talk about stuff in psychology for the most part. Two psychologists for beers. Uh, you can find us uh, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, you can check out my website, uh, net. Uh, my papers and stuff are on there. If you, I think I have all my stuff posted there. And uh, finally, if you want to follow me on Twitter at Yorl, Y-O-R-L. Uh, So yeah, that's it. And thanks so much for having me on. 
proper interesting chat. Thank you so much, Yol, for coming on here. And I've really been reflecting just about that point about sanctity and purity, which I'd never really thought about before. But I do think he's right. I do think there's something in the way that a lot of the way people think about climate change, probably the way I do, certainly about environmental destruction, is a sense of kind of something that was pure, being messed up, being contaminated by something or someone. And that then when you get to thinking that actually something or someone has got there because something or someone has like let it happen and doesn't care either, that's when you can start to go, that is disgusting. That thing that I find disgusting is being done by someone that I therefore find disgusting. And then it's so easy. My brain does do it. My brain goes, yeah, okay. And therefore I find that person to be in some way disgusting. I have definitely thought about oil company executives and had a caricature in my head of them like oozing grease and all of that sort of stuff. And... Blimey, this stuff is powerful, but possibly not helpful if what we're trying to do is actually understand people and how to get them to do something. If you find someone disgusting, you're probably not very likely to want to give them a cuddle. Not that you may want to give them a cuddle, but you take my point. As always, you can get in touch with the show. Let me know what you think. It's hello at Your Brain on Climate or on Twitter at Brain Climate. If you like the show, please, please spread the word. Let's get loads of people listening to this. It is making its way up the charts, but slowly, slowly, catchy monkey. Uh, leave a review, please, if you do nothing else on iTunes. Give it a five-star review and type something. That's the thing that makes the algorithm notice. That's the thing that makes it go up the charts. So thank you very much if you've done that. If you haven't, please do it. And thank you very much in advance for having done the thing that I've just you to do. Right, I'll be back very soon with another chat about something that appears to have nothing to do with climate change at all, but really does, because everything does, because our brains do, because that's what climate change ultimately is all about. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back soon. Until then, bye. Bye.